And well, welcome to First Move. As always, lots to get to this hour, so don't touch that dial. We've got a surprise delay in the Fox Dominion defamation trial. The first batch of U.S. bank earnings making investors, well, smile. Profits from the rest of the economy could be less fertile. And at the IMF, debt relief for needy nations may finally be in style. And I do want to begin there at the IMF World Bank meetings in Washington, D.C. last week. I definitely saw more commitment and consensus from officials to finally tackle the unsustainable debt burdens of poorer nations. And it's a serious issue for us all. Developing nations need to free up trillions of dollars over the coming years to help them adapt to the impact of climate change in particular and protect against further social instability. We all need to care more. China, the largest sovereign lender to developing nations, is also, I think, realising it needs to be part of the debt refinancing solution. And all this, of course, despite the backdrop of geopolitical tensions and fragmentation too. The fight clearly isn't over. In fact, it's just beginning. But I came back from those IMF meetings with hope. And you can compare and contrast that to the paralysis that we're seeing in another debt debate, the fight to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy laying out his vision for how to reach a deal and prevent a damaging debt default during a speech at the New York Stock Exchange in the next hour. The clock is clearly ticking, with the United States set to run out of cash to pay its bills as early as this summer. McCarthy's proposals already seen as being completely unworkable, but I guess debate is progress when you have seriously low expectations. I'll refrain from rolling my eyes. Financial markets are watching all of this too extremely closely. Plenty of nervousness, I think, already with the costs of insuring against that default on the rise. But we do see a relatively calm start to the trading week so far after last week's across-the-board Wall Street advance. Lots of earnings challenges ahead, too, and information to digest with more big financial firms set to report this week. Elon Musk's Tesla also releases results on Wednesday. Musk's week already rocketing ahead, though, as we count down to a major SpaceX launch in Texas. And that is where we begin today's show. You are about to see live pictures of the SpaceX craft on top of the world's largest rocket booster called the Super Heavy, appropriate. It's set for a test launch by Elon Musk's SpaceX in southern Texas this Monday. Starship is designed to ultimately take human crews to Mars. Joining us now is Elizabeth Howell, a writer at Space.com. Elizabeth, this is a hugely exciting moment and fingers crossed we are expecting this launch to take place this morning and not be delayed. Walk us through what we should expect. Well, uh, what we're hoping to see is that this big system is actually going to go into space today, which would be a big deal. But no matter what happens, any kind of a test of a new system is exciting. And so we'll just have to cross our fingers and see what happens next. So we've said appropriately named the Super Heavy, which is the rocket. We have the Starship itself when NASA has chosen this. We have to just understand how important this launch is from a future perspective, too. NASA has chosen this to be the moon lander astronaut for the Artemis 3 mission in, in 2025. Just explain the importance of that and what the hope is to achieve then. 
What we're going to be doing is bringing humans back to the moon and we're going to be landing at the South Pole, which has never been done before, but there's a lot of water down there. And so the hope is that Starship will bring the astronauts to there and then have a lot of room to carry back moon rocks, anything else that they feel is important, and then bring that back to people here on Earth. And so it's a big shipment facility. That's a good way to think about it. And it's going to be carrying a lot of science for us in the future. And the reason why this is all possible is because as we've known, we've talked about many times on the show, SpaceX, SpaceX has collapsed the cost of putting these rockets into space and the fact that they're reusable. So they come back down and are collected and can be used again. It's, it's part of what's key to being able to get people on the moon and hopefully one day Mars as well. Exactly. That's been in uh, SpaceX's DNA from the beginning. They have wanted to bring people, uh, science, all kinds of things out to Mars. But to do that, we do need to lower the cost somehow. And so they have reusable rockets. Um, Starship is going to be made as a mostly reusable system as well. And the hope is that we are not building and building things over again. It's going to be a lot cheaper. And so that's a part of why I agreed. This is so exciting. So it is very exciting. We do hope this takes off um, in the coming one hour and a half or so. Um, the hope is, though, this hour, and we'll see it live on the show. But we also have to um, sort of predicate this with the fact that Elon Musk himself in recent weeks has said that there's a 50% chance that this rocket explodes and actually just taking off is, um, will be a great thing. Elizabeth, can you give us some context on that too for, for audiences that are going to be watching this? And I think terrified if we do see some uh, sort of fireworks when this takes off. Well, the good news is there's nobody on board and that SpaceX right. is a very safe company. They do their best to make sure that everybody is a good distance away if such a thing happens. And whenever a failure like this happens, especially on a test mission, we still learn things. And so the important thing to think about is just like when your kids, you know, and your parents or guardians said to you, try and try again. That's something that people have done with rockets for, well, you know, hundreds and even thousands of years if you're talking about the Chinese. And so even if this doesn't go to plan, we're going to learn something from it and the next version will be all that much better. So we'll just see what happens next. Yes. So keep calm and carry on. Don't panic if you see some fireworks and fingers crossed it, it takes off and the weather conditions look right. I mean, it looks like a beautiful day there uh, over in Texas today. So fingers crossed we see it. Elizabeth, you may be back with us if it does launch in this hour. For now, thank you so much, Elizabeth Howell, staff writer at space.com. Great to have you on. Thank you. For now, a surprise twist in Dominion Voting System's high-stakes defamation trial against Fox News. The judge in the case announced a one-day delay without further explanation, raising the possibility that a settlement is in the works. The Wall Street Journal, which is owned by Fox Corporation chairman Rupert Murdoch, reported that Fox News has made a late push to settle. Oliver Darcy joins us now. Oliver, you and I have been discussing this now for weeks, and we have both discussed in the past why this hasn't already settled. Admittedly, the size of this is monstrous, but this sort of makes sense to me. Yeah, some 11th hour drama in this case. It was, like you said, expected to start today. Um, and now there's actually a hearing going on right behind me in this Delaware courthouse. But it's not the start of the trial. It's not the start of opening arguments. Instead, the judge is making an announcement about why this trial has been delayed until at least tomorrow. And it comes amid reports, as you said, that there is a last minute push 
by Fox for a settlement. That uh, report first came in uh, Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. It's now been confirmed by several other outlets. So we'll see what happens if a settlement is in the works. Dominion, however, just walked into the courtroom. Our Marshall Cohen's in the courtroom and they walked in with 40 boxes, four zero boxes of evidence. So they're clearly prepared to take this to trial. We'll see if they somehow manage to avert a trial. It would be an agonizing process as we've discussed for the past few weeks for Fox News, for Rupert Murdoch. He'd have to come to Wilmington, take the stand, be questioned about why he allowed election lies to be broadcast on Fox's air. That's not something I don't think he wants to do. Um, so it would be in his interest, obviously, to um, hammer this uh, settlement out outside of court. Uh, they have about a day left to, uh, to do that. We'll see if it happens. Yeah, I mean, th there's a number of angles we can take in here. The, the money that we're talking about in this case, the uh, $1.6 billion lawsuit is astonishing when Dominion itself has openly said that its business is valued at less than, what, $100 million. So the, the money that we're talking about here, whether it's settled or otherwise, is, is so huge. But the legal mm. bar here, Oliver, I think is important, too, for Dominion to have to win this case. They have to prove that not only did Fox know what it was saying was false about Dominion, but they carried on anyway. That's right. And I think Dominion believes it has a very strong case to prove legally that Fox knew it was lying about the company, but allowed those lies to be broadcast. Now, Fox has obviously denied any wrongdoing. They've maintained that they're proud of their 2020 election coverage. Uh, and they've said that Dominion's uh, claims of $1.6 billion in damages is a wildly inflated figure. Um, and so we'll see if they can, again, manage to settle this dispute outside of court. The one thing, too, to keep in mind is that uh, the Delaware court could also award Fox punitive damages. So on top of the compensatory, compensatory damages, they could also be awarded punitive damages that can also uh, drive the amount of money that Fox would have to pay up quite a bit. Again, it's really unclear at where this trial stands at this point in time, whether it's going to take place or whether uh, Murdoch can uh, get a last minute settlement and uh, avoid coming down to Wilmington for this trial. Yeah. And does he want he and his people on the stand? Because that was always going to be the real firework moment, I think. Oliver, we shall see what today's negotiations bring. Oliver Darcy there. Thank you. OK, heavy fighting underway for a third day in Sudan as battle intensifies between two rival generals and Sudanese citizens pay the price. Larry Madogo explains. Two generals at war. Since Saturday... The forces of General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, known as the Rapid Support Forces Paramilitary Group, or RSF, have been locked in battle with the Sudanese army, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. The fighting comes as Sudan tries to finalize a deal to return to civilian rule after two military coups in recent years, which temporarily united the army and the RSF. In a phone interview, Dagalo, who is better known as Hemeti, told me ruling Sudan isn't his endgame. What do you personally want from this situation, General Hamdan? Do you want to lead the army? Do you want to be the chief? I don't want to be the leader of the army. There's a framework agreement between all the Sudanese stakeholders that should be adhered to. I don't want to lead anything. These are all propaganda they are making. As part of the agreement, the RSF, some 100,000 strong, would merge with the army. But differences over how long that would take and who would end up with more power aggravated tensions between the two factions, which have since erupted into open warfare. Residential areas across Sudan have become battlefields, with anti-aircraft weapons in the streets, 
and warplanes hovering overhead. Scores of civilians have been killed. The army blames the RSF for the violence, with Hamedti pointing the finger back at al-Burhan. What is your message to the many people of Sudan who are scared about this fresh round of violence? We offer a serious apology to them, because what we can say is al-Burhan is the one that forced us to do this. It was not us who did this. We were defending ourselves. Doctors' unions say it's been difficult for medics to move about amid reports of many people being trapped near fighting hotspots. Despite a UN-brokered temporary truce, there were reports of gunfire in Khartoum, which Hamedi again blamed on the army. We're under attack from all directions. They are attacking us with marked and unmarked vehicles. Unfortunately, they're not stopping. It's unclear what side was firing during the ceasefire, but the army says it retains the right to respond if any violations occurred. Sudan's neighbors are looking for ways to de-escalate the violence. Egypt and South Sudan have offered to mediate talks between the two sides. The African Union and the Arab League both held emergency sessions with more calls for an immediate end to the hostilities. The army has said there will be no dialogue until the RSF is dissolved. Hamedti says the stakes are so high in Sudan that any possible negotiations would have to be serious. We are not refusing to go to the negotiating table as long as the negotiation is true and truthful, honest, not playing games. Nema Avakir joins us now from London. Nema, there are accusations flying thick and fast from, from both sides. I know it's very difficult for us to clarify what information is real and has been confirmed. What do we know at this stage? Well, we know that the conflict has intensified and we actually were able to verify and create a heat map of the spread of incidents across the capital, Khartoum. And you can see, not only is it very widespread, but a lot of that is in the heart of residential areas. And this is something that Commander Mohammed Hamdan Degalu did not acknowledge in his interview, which is that the RSF's garrisons were intentionally placed inside residential areas. Why? Because for the last few years, there has been this escalating tension between them, a paramilitary group, and the country's armed forces and a sense of rivalry and the competition for the ultimate prize of power. What's happening now is that because of the presence of the RSF inside these neighborhoods, people are terrified inside their homes. Julia, people are losing access to fresh, clean running water. Electricity and power have been cut off in many areas in Sudan. Um, Members of the doctors' organizations are telling us that they are unable to reach the injured and the wounded. And that in many cases, in too many cases, people are unable to even bury their dead. Information is so difficult to come by, but every single time we speak to someone, every time we manage to get through, Juliet, what we hear is the utter heartbreak. Many people are lying on the ground, sheltering on the floor with their children, and they are, they're just so incredibly scared because the future continues to be unclear. It's unmanageable, and to, to your mm. point, that there's a, a clear need for a ceasefire to allow people to mm. bury their dead and mm. to get emergency services in. Um, Nemer, it's sort of a long way away from the discussion today, but, but both generals have talked about this idea of the country needing to head towards a civilian-led government. How, how do you even imagine the prospect of that in the future based on what we're, we're seeing today with the... With the the sort of fallout being the the loss of civilian life and injury and devastation. Mm. Well, and also the idea that if the RSF 
emerges victorious. Then you have a paramilitary group, um, an auxiliary force to the army, having conquered and emerged victorious, a paramilitary group that was supplied and trained and equipped by Russia emerging victorious against the country's own army. It is, it is a, a, a volatile and untenable situation. So when Mohammed Hamdan Degelo says, as, as he did in that excellent interview that Larry did, uh, when he says, I want to return to the civilians, he is not a part of the infrastructure of rule. And how can you return, to, how can the country trust him to return power if he emerges victorious. The, the, the sticking point is who gets to be the king in that relationship with the civilians. But the problem is going to be if both of these armed forces, both of these fighting forces have been allowed to hold the country hostage, then how can you have credible negotiations with the civilian leadership? And how can the people of Sudan and the regional powers trust them? Trust broken on all sides. Um, Nema, great to get your insight. Thank you so much for that there. Okay, just in to CNN. The SpaceX Starship flight test has been apparently cancelled for today, despite our excitement and best efforts. They're troubleshooting a pressurization issue, apparently. And SpaceX is now treating this like a dress rehearsal for the team. So we continue to see that countdown, which is why we were getting so excited. But apparently, just to reiterate, it will now not launch today. More details to come as we get them. But for now, that flight has been cancelled. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. The SpaceX Starship flight test has been cancelled for today. Apparently, they're troubleshooting a pressurization issue. Starship is designed to ultimately take human crews to the moon and even Mars. Elizabeth Howell is back with us. Elizabeth, I have to say, I was so excited. You and I were were getting prepared for this launch. I'm furiously watching Elon Musk's Twitter handle as well, because that's also a source of information. And he says a pressurant valve appears to be frozen. So unless it starts operating soon, no launch today. That was eight minutes ago. So I'm sort of not ruling out this launch completely. Can you give us any information about that? Do you do you know? what that means? Well, um, SpaceX is going to give us more information as it becomes available. And so props to them for letting us know that there's an issue and that uh, they're going to be working on that. And I mean, even if it doesn't launch today, they will get it fixed up and they will try it again soon. Yeah, the message was, look, we're still going to run this. We're still going to run the clock down. We're still going to do a trial run effectively for everybody around this, which, as we were discussing earlier, If this doesn't work, they'll do it again. But it's actually quite good for the team around this to pretend that this is going to take place just for sort of functional learning purposes. That's exactly it, because um, this is all a big learning process. They're launching something that is fairly new. It's only been in Earth's atmosphere before, and today they were hoping to bring it to space. But even if that doesn't all happen, they can learn stuff from running through the procedures, seeing how the rocket behaves, um, figuring out uh, how to solve problems. These are all going to be useful for future space launches for sure. Yeah. And in the ultimate tease ever, apparently the countdown clock has been paused at 40 seconds. So I think we're pretty sure now that this is not going to take place. Um, do we have any sense of timing over? I mean, obviously, they have to work out what went wrong here and try and, and work on a fix. But do they have other dates selected for when they could perhaps try and relaunch this and, and do a take two 
Well, um, I don't think that they've released an official second date yet, mm. but um, there is a, a little bit of worse weather, not bad weather, but just a bit worse um, in the coming days. That said, though, SpaceX is really good at um, doing things again quickly. So it's possible that it might be very soon or they might wait a little bit. It just depends on how comfortable they feel with both the weather and the technical matters. So I realize it's not much of an answer, but I can tell you from more than 20 years of work that SpaceX is very good at making its choices. And so we'll just have to see what they decide to do. Yeah. And just remind us for viewers perhaps that are just joining us and, and didn't hear the discussion that we had earlier, the fact that there is nobody aboard this rocket and shuttle and the importance of this launch and this craft for future purposes, be it particularly a hopeful moon landing in, in 2025. Exactly. So what they're doing today is an uncrewed test. There's nobody on board. There's nobody nearby. And um, the goal is to try and bring the Starship into space. And then what they want to be doing in the very near term, maybe as soon as 2025, if you can believe it, is to bring NASA astronauts to the south pole of the moon. And there, um, the astronauts will be picking up moon rocks and maybe working a bit in the water ice and then bringing all this stuff back to Earth. And the great thing about Starship compared with uh, the Apollo generation is how much more it can carry. And so we can imagine a lot of stuff going back and forth between Earth and the moon and even Earth and NASA's future gateway space station near the moon. So it's going to be very useful and obviously great practice for Mars, right? Absolutely. Um, how much more can it carry, just to your point? I don't have those figures right on hand, but um, Elon Musk has uh, tweeted that all over the place, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll both go and do our due diligence on that now. Um, Elizabeth, oh, such a tease because, look, we can see it there and the smoke and everything. But yes, hopefully they'll, they'll get back to it soon. Elizabeth Howe, staff writer at Space.com. Thank you for joining us and for your insights today. OK, let's move on. Widespread condemnation now over the sentencing in Russia of Vladimir Karamurza, a prominent Kremlin critic. Karamurza, who has Russian and British citizenship, was given 25-year sentence in prison after publicly criticizing Russia's war on Ukraine. He was accused of treason and discrediting the Russian military. Amnesty International calling the sentence a chilling example of the systematic repression of civil society. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, clearly widespread condemnation of this sentence. The family have already said they'll appeal, but what hopes of an appeal in Russia? I mean, it's pretty bleak, Julia, mm. the Kremlin declining to comment. But the message here is pretty clear. He's not the only opposition figure now set to serve time in jail. Alexei Navalny, nine or more, more than nine years, he's currently serving uh, on fraud charges, which he says are politically motivated. He is said to be critically ill. Opposition politician Ilya Yashin sentenced to eight and a half years in December for the same charge, one of the same charges leveled against Karamurza, which is discrediting the Russian army, that new law brought in uh, after the invasion of Ukraine. We've seen a significant uptick in repression at home since the start of the war in various ways. But the crackdown on dissent is clearly the main one. There were, according to the Moscow court, 40 diplomats in the courthouse today from 24 countries, mostly it should be said, European, including as well the US and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Three of those ambassadors uh, made statements outside the court. Take a listen uh, to the US ambassador to Moscow, Lynn Tracy. Criminalization of criticism of government action is a sign of weakness, not strength. We support the right of Mr. Karamurza and every Russian citizen 
to have a voice in the direction of their country. As you said, uh, Mr. Karamurza held dual citizenship, also British citizenship, alongside Russian. The UK Foreign Office has summoned the Russian ambassador to London to make it very clear that they see this as a violation of Russia's obligations on human rights, including the rights to a fair trial. The spokesman for the German government saying that well, this shows what a shocking extent repression has reached in Russia. And I want to read you the tweet that came out from Mr. Karamurza's wife, Evgenia Karamurza, who has continued to campaign uh, while he's been in prison. She says, a quarter century, that is a five plus for your courage, consistency and honesty in your many years of work. I am eternally proud of you, my dear, and I am always with you. Uh, A plus, it's equivalent to five plus in Russian schools. So a quarter century, clearly a significant sentence showing that Russia is not backing down in this campaign uh, of repression, though, as I said, Vladimir Karamurza's lawyers intend to appeal this verdict. Yeah, his wife to her husband, I'm always by your side. Great bravery and our heart and thoughts are with him and his family. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, still to come. A suspected settlement, a minute from midnight twist in the defamation case against media giant Fox, with the trial now delayed by a day. We'll discuss what Dominion needs to prove to win the case if it ends up going ahead. Stay with us next. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks have launched for trade this Monday morning. No takeoff today for the SpaceX Starship in Texas, so stocks have to do. Not a lot of rocket fire, though, or propulsion on Wall Street either, as you can see, relatively unchanged. And a bit of cautiousness, I think, as investors await earnings for 59 companies in the S&P 500 this week. And that includes Goldman Sachs, Tesla and Netflix. Major U.S. banks JP Morgan, Citigroup and Wells Fargo did deliver solid results late last week, though. But what smaller regional banks say about their bottom lines, that's going to be a key test in the weeks ahead. And we're also watching opening statements in Fox News's high stakes trial that was supposed to start today. But in a surprise twist Sunday night, the judge put back the start of the one point six billion dollar case until Tuesday. Dominion Voting Systems has accused Fox of knowingly broadcasting lies and conspiracy theories about its voting machines after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Private text messages show that several prominent Fox News hosts, including Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, knew the claims they were airing were not true. Fox has denied wrongdoing, saying the U.S. Constitution protects the right to free speech. And joining us now to discuss this is Floyd Abrams. He's a renowned First Amendment attorney. Floyd, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to discuss what's at stake and what Dominion have to prove in order to win this. But very quickly, we've just heard from the judge, Eric Davis, saying that it's not unusual to have a one day delay. It's a six week trial. Things happen. Just very quickly in your, your view and what you've seen in the past, is it unusual to have this one day delay? And what do you think was taking place, if anything? It's, it's not unusual for mm. parties in the last millisecond before a trial begins to make a last try to see if they can settle it. And that's what seems to be going on uh, here. Uh, I mean, here, here we have a, a major threat, perhaps the most major uh, since American libel law uh, changed sort of radically 
in a pro-defendant, pro-press way, where a large, enormously large press institution uh, is at very real risk of a multi, what, hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, a verdict against them. So it's no surprise that they would try to make uh, a, a last moment settlement. Whether that'll happen, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I was going to say, he's not said anything in open court about potential settlement talks, I guess, nor would you expect him to. What's your gut feel, Flo, based on all the information that you have? And then we'll do a deep dive on the probability that we do see some kind of settlement. Above half? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I'd say above, above half. Uh, uh, um, more, I think, uh, from the Dominion perspective, because even if it wins this case uh, and wins the appeals and appeals that will follow, uh, the amount they receive may not be as cataclysmic as they're asking. So if they can get enough from their perspective, uh, they might well be willing to take it. Yeah. I mean, have you ever even seen a billion dollar recovery in a, in a liable case? You Never. can answer that. Never. Yeah, exactly. Never. Um, what does Dominion need to prove in this case in order to win the case? Because you and I were talking about this yesterday and I was learning lots about the differences between the yeah. U.S. legal system and elsewhere in the world. And that the bar here, the legal bar is incredibly high. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, for a plaintiff, the party suing to win a liable case for Dominion to win, they have to show not only what was said about them was false, but that Fox either knew or suspected that what they were, what Fox was saying, was false. So it's a state of mind requirement where the, the plaintiff, Dominion in this case, the party saying they were libeled, has to prove that the party that, 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 that they're suing really did it on purpose, knew what they were doing, or had, had the strongest sense that what they were saying wasn't true. It's a very difficult burden to meet. Uh, I think, and I think a lot of people who have followed this case closely, believe that Dominion has a quite good chance of doing just that. But uh, we've never had, ever, uh, a, a verdict uh, in the range that Dominion is seeking uh, and uh, all the lawyers who have anything to do with this field, uh, I think, uh, would be unhappy because they want to see the game played. I mean, it's almost like canceling the World Series from an American, <laughs> American perspective, not to have this case after all these years and all this, these depositions and testimony uh, be, uh, in a sense, uh, of naught, not really because any settlement would have to be cataclysmic. You know, I think one of the things um, that's vitally important for us to discuss in this case as well, beyond the sort of hand rubbing at the, the sort of consequences and the financial perhaps benefits for the legal industry on this, is um, the precedent that it would be setting um, against news media in general, and, and I think this is something, you've written an op-ed about this, which is vitally important as well, is mm. um, can the press be held liable for quoting false 
and defamatory claims by prominent figures um, and questioning. It's not whether you promote that view yourself, but can the press be held liable for at least raising the question? Because that also comes to bear in this. And I know you've fought cases in the past and won on appeal where this question came up. Yes, yes. It, it's a very important question. Uh, you know, uh, I, I said earlier that the legal test relates to the state of mind uh, of the journalistic entity. But what sort of state of mind? I mean, how uh, suppose they think or sort of think or sort of doubt what they're saying might not be true. We don't have cases in that sort of gray uh, area, and we've certainly never had a case in which we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Dominion is seeking over a billion dollars in damages. Uh, it's also a case uh, that's rather unusual where I'd say an awful lot of First Amendment types, I consider yes. myself one, are sort of rooting quietly usually for Dominion to win. I mean, in my view, it would not be a, a, a loss for free speech, uh, but a vindication of truth-telling uh, and a punishment of deliberate falsification uh, if the jury were to find that uh, Dominion wins the case. Yeah, because it's about far more than just defamation in this case. It's about um, knowingly misleading um, the public about something and something really big like a, a U.S. election. Um, yeah, and, and it's the most important or, or the broadcaster with more people who watch it than right. any other. Yes. I'm not going to say any more about that without looking in, in some way biased. But um, <laughs> yes, big, big question, certainly, Floyd, are being asked. Um, yeah, we're going to have to see now. Again, you said that you think it's more likely than not that, that this gets settled. Will we ever yeah, know the I, amount I, it gets settled for? Uh, the only reason I said that is that you made me guess uh, how, how it's going to come out. Uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, look, if I were on the Fox board, if I were on the Fox board, I would say, for God's sakes, find a way to end this thing. Right. Uh, Don't put our anchors on the, um, yes. on the witness stand or Rupert Murdoch himself. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's something else that w will happen if this case proceeds to trial, that Mr. Murdoch himself would have to testify and defend or try to defend as best he could uh, the, uh, the journalism, uh, yeah. which is uh, certainly subject to very severe cr criticism by, by people who care deeply for the First Amendment. Right. Floyd, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, educating me this weekend, too. It was a um, fascinating conversation. We'll speak Thanks. again soon. Thank you. Sure. All right, coming up, investing in protecting the undersea world. But when it comes to philanthropic funding, what they've received is a mere drop in the ocean. Why? After the break, an artificial alternative to rebuilding our beautiful coral reefs. back to first move. Japanese police have raided the home of a man they believe through an explosive device near the prime minister over the weekend. The dramatic moment was recorded and posted online. And CNN's Mark Stewart has the details. 
As soon as the risk of danger became apparent during a campaign stop, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's security team immediately sprang into action. It's a moment that was caught on camera and posted on social media. The video shows a member of the security detail kicking away a pipe bomb. It appears to have been thrown in the prime minister's direction. That officer then uses a protective board to shield Kashida as he's rushed away from the scene. And then moments later, the sound of an explosion. Over the weekend, police raided the home of the 24-year-old suspect. They removed several items, including a computer, a mobile phone, tools, and what appears to be gunpowder, Japanese public broadcaster NHK said. The scare occurred as international leaders converge on Japan this week ahead of the G7 conference next month in Hiroshima and less than a year after the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The Prime Minister addressed questions about safety. For event schedules like the G7 summit, where dignitaries from around the world gather, I believe Japan nationwide will have to work together to make the utmost effort to provide security and safety. In Japan, local campaign events like the one attended by the prime minister are very common and often without extensive security restrictions. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Coral reef cover less than a tenth of one percent of the world's oceans, and yet they support over a quarter of our planet's marine life and a billion people who also rely on fishing, tourism and other related industries. But it's one in fact that climate change threatens their very existence. Right now, we lose more coral in a day that can be restored in a decade. However, a new project to install more resilient artificial versions is taking shape. These specifically manufactured reefs off the coasts of Antigua and Barbuda consist of pH-neutral concrete skeletons made of calcium carbonate. They mimic natural reefs using corals which are grown in an underwater nursery and attached to the original skeleton. Dr. Deborah Brosnan is a marine scientist at Ocean Shot Project. She's also president and founder of Brosnan & Associates. Dr. Brosnan, Deborah, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain the vision of these vital technology and, and the focus of what you're trying to achieve. Yes, so first of all, coral reefs are vital to our economy and also right. to the health of the planet, as well as our own health. And as you pointed out, we're losing more corals in a day than we can currently restore in a decade. So uh, John Paul DeGioia, who is supporting this project, and I sat down one day and said, what can we do to speed up the restoration of these coral reefs and to make it scalable and transferable to other nations around the world that need this kind of technology and need their reefs? And coral reefs are amazing because it's a combination of the corals. So corals are both architects and their builders. So this tiny coral that looks like a sea anemone actually creates a whole skeleton of calcium carbonate concrete, if you like. So the whole reef structures that we see, whether it's the Great Barrier Reef or off the coast of Florida, is made literally by these tiny corals secreting the calcium carbonate. So what we're looking at here is not just restoring endangered corals themselves, but also the kinds of structures that they build over hundreds and thousands of years, but to do it at a faster rate so that we can keep up with climate change, keep up with the corals that we're losing, the reefs that we're losing, and help to restore that resilience on which a billion people depend right now. 
So that's the, that's the vision behind it. I mean, we're just showing some images now so you can see what looks to be traditional reef attached to this, um, this new structure. Is it about designing technology to replace what we've lost or something that's more superior, something that can survive what comes in the future, whether it's climate change or different wave patterns? Is that a stupid question or a valid one? No, no, it's not a stupid question. It's a valid question because what you question... What you're asking here is really, are we designing for the past or are we designing for the future? And what we're doing is we're designing for the future. We're taking everything that coral reefs have have taught us and the evolution of reefs for millions of years, and we're enhancing it. So we're asking ourselves, what is the world going to look like? What is sea level going to look like? What are our beaches going to look like in 50, 100, 150 years? And how do we design reefs and monitor those reefs for the conditions that we will be facing? In essence, to give the reefs a leg up, to transition them to a new world, and also to transition ourselves because we depend so much on reefs. So we are using AI technology. We are, for instance, we have some AI technology cameras that are now deployed on these reef structures. And they're looking at what kind of survival we're getting of corals, what kind of species are coming into the reefs. And right now we've planted nine different species. We're getting 97 to 98% survival of those newly planted corals. Wow. But we also have 20, I know it's amazing, which tells you <laughs> corals are tough little creatures and resilient. <laughs> and we have 26 species that moved in there. So when you build the right structure, when you, when you work it through, it, it works. I mean, congratulations is all I can say um, on that point, which is um, phenomenal progress. How quickly does it take, though, to grow and get more species back? You know, we, we can reiterate that statistic again, that we're losing more in a day than, than we can build in a decade. How quickly can we accelerate the rebuild? And what does it take? Money, obviously, but just in terms of the technology. Yes. Mm-hmm. It takes money, science, it takes investment, science, technology, um, and people willing, willing actually to do the work. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. This is very doable. I mean, John Paul and I are actually doing it. Other people can do it. And there's a lot of investment we're seeing now, a lot of good work going into coral reefs. So how long does it take? It really depends on how quickly we can really grow the corals. And we're now growing resilient corals. There are several groups that are growing resilient corals. Um, so we know that the corals can survive the transition. And really, the the trick is to be able to build these reefs fast enough and scalable enough that we can deploy them in different parts of the world. It's not this. We've got the science. This is not an intractable problem. I feel like saying it's not rocket science because it is so doable. It's very practical. We just have to do it. Yeah. And and this is the key. It's about the will, I think, and and people understanding how essential this is. Um, the, The numbers, the statistics on this just blow my mind. It's minuscule the amount of funding that our oceans get. If we look at it in terms of the Sustainable Development Goals, I believe it's 0.56% of all the philanthropic funding that goes to that, which just makes no sense to me, given how much of the fishing, tourism, um, communities rely on um, the protection of our oceans. Deborah, is it just a mindset thing where people need to understand not only the importance, but that we can de-risk the investment in this sphere? Because... From conversations I've had, it's this perception that it's just too risky and the return is is not there. Yes, you're exactly spot on. It's really changing the mindset. The oceans have always been seen as high risk. 
And yet, if the oceans were a country, they'd be ranked seventh in the world in terms of GDP. Right. That's how massive the oceans are and how important they are to us. So it is this mindset that the oceans are almost an alien environment, that they're very risky to invest in, and that so we've avoided them. But we've learned a lot about our oceans. We've learned how to de-risk it. So it's really about getting more people to invest in the oceans. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see it happen in companies that are investing. We're starting to see it in private equity. And we're starting to see it in public-private partnerships. But we don't, we're not nearly there yet. We're just starting, almost starting to turn the tide. So a lot more is needed. But the return on investments are there. Yeah, it's good. I have about a minute left. What, what about what we can do as people listening to this conversation as consumers, as um, sushi munchers, ocean farers and beach lovers? What, what can we do? We can do a lot. I, I think the first mistake that we often make as individuals is to think the problem is so intractable that we can do nothing. Yeah. But we have a huge impact and we have a huge impact in the choices that we make, whether it's eating sustainable seafood, whether it's going to, to places that support the kind of ecotourism or protection of the environment and get and rewarding those companies or those communities and supporting those communities. And then it's about spreading the word. It's about letting people know that you care. Because one of the things I found is that the private sector listens to its customers. It listens to what people are saying. It listens to what matters to them. And if we as individuals and, and communities talk to the companies, talk to the governments and say, look, this really matters to us. We need you to put your investment in here. We need you to take care of our environment and the communities that depend on the environment. They listen because it directly affects their bottom line. Yeah, we have to harness that power. And I believe your next reef is set to be placed off the coast of Barbuda and it's going to be 150 metres long, just yes. in case anyone's planning a holiday and, to your point, putting money where your mouth is and interest. <laughs> Dr. Yeah, Deborah Brosnan. Please, yeah, please there we go. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thank you. Marine scientist at the Ocean Shop Project. Great to have you. Thank you. OK, and finally, on First Move, fans of the highly anticipated live reunion of Love is Blind were left bitterly disappointed after a technical glitch got in the way of a live streaming event. For those in the dark, like me, the series features couples that propose before seeing one another. Netflix says a taped version of the show will be available to watch later on Monday. That's not the sort of hitch fans were hoping for. I didn't write that, but that's great. <laughs> Hmm. Not sure about the marriage prospects, though, and the divorce rate. But anyway, that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.